The following is a podcast from Ballin Entertainment. Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. He's a painter, a musician, and a performer who is boldly going where no legally blind actor has gone before. Today on the Stratford Slice. Believe it or not, there's a strong connection between Stratford and Star Trek. Of course, William Shatner graced the stage of the Stratford Festival almost 70 years ago before heading off to Broadway with a touring company and being discovered in the early days of television. And that led about 10 years later to uh, Star Trek, the original series. In Bill's footsteps, there were people like Christopher Plummer, who played Chang in An Undiscovered Country. There was William Hutt, Douglas Campbell, Lauren Green, Francis Hyland, James Mason, and Bill Needles. And now there's Bruce Horak, and he's sitting across from me today at the table. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much for having me, Craig. Now, you play Engineer Hammer on the new series, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is actually a prequel to the original series, correct? That is correct, yes. Uh, Strange New Worlds takes place, I believe, about 10 years before Kirk takes over as the captain of the Enterprise. It follows the adventures of Cadet Uhura and uh, science officer Spock, who's not the number one yet, and uh, Captain Christopher Pike and the uh, various and sundry crew members who we get to meet along the way. Now we go back 30 years or so to Star Trek The Next uh, Generation when LeVar Burton played a blind uh, helmsman named LaForge, and he initially had a, a visor and then had prosthetic implants. Mm. But he, Le- LeVar Burton, as we know, is not uh, legally blind, but was playing a legally blind character. You are legally blind, and you're now playing uh, a character who is legally blind. It's interesting how things have shifted over the last 30 years. Yeah, the, when the call went out for for the, the casting, they were looking specifically for actors who were blind or visually impaired to play a blind alien and on Star Trek. And so when I when that sort of crossed my desk, I said, yes, please put me in. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. And, uh, you know, the, the, the audition process and everything was, they, they spoke very openly and candidly about the, the type of actor they were looking for and to bring some of that lived experience. The character, uh, while doesn't have the use of his eyes, he's got this extreme telepathy, so he's actually able to see better than, than uh, anyone else on the on the bridge or on the on the ship. So, in a way, I'm I'm actually playing a bit of a superhero, which is kind of nice. Tell me uh, about how it came across your desk. What? Uh, was it random? Like, how did you uh, first encounter the Star Trek opportunity? Well, it was through my agent, uh, Chris Oldfield in Toronto. He gets all the casting breakdowns, and when he saw that, he he sent it to me and said, we should probably go for this. And and being that it was Star Trek, I immediately got very excited because I've been, I've been raised on Star Trek. It's in my blood, really. Um, my dad was a high school uh, English teacher, and he actually took a year off, took a sabbatical, and wrote a master's thesis on teaching science fiction in high schools. So we got all, we got big doses of sci-fi at home, watching the original series and reruns, and then Next Generation when it came out. So yeah, there's a real love of it, and uh, and just you know the optimism of the of the franchise is just so powerful. Um, the message of hope that it brings out. So the opportunity to jump into Star Trek was just yeah, it was kind of a no-brainer. What about that opportunity about the lived experience you talked about? Like 30 years ago, we, anybody could play anybody, but now yeah. we realize that we have to represent diversity of ability and cultures in everything we do. And mm. that must have been such a, wow, pinch me, am I really here? Oh, every day, every day. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. And, and you know, to, to speak to that, um, you know, the cultural shift, it... You know, seeing that within my lifetime has been really exciting. And, and, you know, to be honest, a little challenging as well. I mean, I got into performing and acting because I like to play other people. You know, I, I, I get a great deal of, of joy and there's, a, there's a, an element of, I guess, compassion that takes over when you step into somebody else's shoes and you see the world from somebody else's perspective. And, and that really excites me as a performer. I have done some shows where I just stand on stage as myself and speak, which feels more like 
public speaking and a presentation than acting. You know, acting is transforming yourself. I remember seeing um, Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot, for instance, and he plays Christy Brown, who's a disabled painter. And I think I was probably 14 or 15 when I saw that movie, just starting to get into the world of paint myself. And uh, seeing Daniel Day-Lewis completely transform himself on screen, I was convinced. I, I was certain that they had found an actor who was disabled. And then I saw him get up and receive an Academy Award. I'm like, wait a minute, what the? But that that sort of uh, transformation was just so powerful, and I, that's really what attracted me into getting on stage and, and playing other characters. You know, playing Richard the Third, or playing. You know, I was in I was in college, and I played uh, Reverend Eli Jenkins in Under Milkwood, who's this old Welshman. You know, and so you get to kind of step into these other roles and transform yourself. And now the the shift towards um, authenticity in a way takes away that opportunity from the actor um, you, you can't step out on stage unless you have that lived experience I mean there's a real there's a real cutting off of opportunity for those levels of uh, expression transformation and ultimately for the performer it's it's uh, an exercise in compassion and empathy and the audience can either choose to go on that journey and accept this or they can kind of fold their arms and say well that's not real but it's a bit like watching the opening of Star Wars and, and immediately saying, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, in a way, it's like it's it's, it's this kind of uh, harsh skepticism that, um, yeah, I, I, I hope at some point anyway, we can move beyond that. But the experience with Star Trek, here I am actually still getting to transform. I'm, I'm sitting for three and a half hours in a makeup chair and having 15 pieces of prosthetic put on and then pretending that I can you know, read people's thoughts and walk down a corridor without bumping into anything. So there's still, even within the authenticity of the casting, there's an opportunity for me as an actor to uh, to transform. I want to go back to your childhood because... Me too. You were... <laughs> you want to wind back the clock. Um, you weren't born uh, blind, but you had childhood cancer. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So I was, um, I believe, about 18 months of age when they discovered that there was cancer in my eyes. Um, and my right eye was removed completely because the, the retina was covered in tumors. In the left eye, there were just three little tumors on the, on the retina. And initially what they were gonna do was remove the eye completely, but um, my parents kind of stepped in and said, can you save some of his eyesight, anything? So um, my doctor in Calgary said, well, they're doing this radical radiation treatment in Toronto. We'll, We'll see if we can get you an appointment. And my mom stopped the doctor right there and said, call him, call him right now. I'll give you the money. You, you get on the, on the phone and you call the doctor. And sat in that office and the doctor called right away and they, they set up this treatment. So mom and me flew to Toronto and dad stayed home with my three older brothers. And I went off to Toronto for radiation treatment. And the they figured what would happen was that scar tissue would develop over the retina. And I might have some perception of light and shadow. But by this happy accident, this little window is in the middle of my retina that's clear of scar tissue. Um, a cataract developed as a result of the radiation treatment, so they removed my lens when I was about four and a half years old. So I have roughly 9% vision, so that accounts for visual acuity, what I can see clearly, and then visual field as well. So I see, like, looking down a, a straw through a murky glass of water. Wow. Yeah, and that's, that's been my normal since I was four and a half years old. Well, as long as you remember, obviously, because your memory wouldn't be <laughs> much right. before that. Yeah. So that probably led to you following the creative path, because you must have created imaginary worlds that you couldn't see. What would you have done, do you think, uh, if your life had you not uh, been blind? Were there other hmm. avenues you thought, oh, I'm good at math or computers? or, or <laughs> Why creativity? Well... I come from a very creative family. Um, I mentioned my dad was a high school English teacher. He was also a drama teacher and an amateur cartoonist. And he collected comic books since he was a kid. So he had a study in the basement where he would go and mark papers, and it was floor to ceiling with old comic books. You know, he had Action Comics, number one, the first appearance of Batman. He had all these classics. And he also collected uh, the old comic pages that used to be the full size, you know. Um, and he bound those in books. And I remember lying on the books and getting about an inch away from the art just to read it. And uh, things like Prince Valiant and all, yeah, all these wonderful old comic strips. So that was really in the blood. We were always encouraged to draw and paint. And um, mom 
is a uh, is a writer and is a painter as well and a singer and so there is music and art and and drama in the house um well yeah four boys of course there was drama but um we you know family gatherings we would put on a play and uh my oldest brother is an actor and a director and uh my second oldest brother is a musician and the, the brother who's a year older than me is a visual artist as well so the creative path was certainly um laid out pretty strongly and it was terrible in school so <laughs> it seemed like the arts were uh, kind of predestined whether i was visually impaired or not well let's talk about your painting because you have managed to merge painting with performance mm. and with with music so tell me what is the intersection of those multidisciplinary arts that you have what do you think is the most dominant one and then how did they intersect well I started, yeah, I, so going back, I, I was really interested in music um, as a kid. So I took guitar and piano lessons and drum lessons all the way up until high school. Um, got involved in theater in probably grade six or so, I think I did my first play. And was writing from the time I was in grade three. Um, and always drawing, always doodling. Uh, it was something I would do to pass the time instead of uh, learning in school. And uh, so all of that sort of creative stuff was just always coming out. And, and we were never really asked to choose anything. So whenever the impulse would strike, I would just go off and do that. And then as we got into high school, um, it started to have to choose less and less options. So I dropped music in favor of theater and art class. And then when I got to, I think, the end of grade 11, um, my uh, art teacher said, that she wasn't sure that there was a post-secondary education facility that would know what to do with a blind kid. She said, I can teach you to do basic fundamentals, but beyond that, I'm not sure how much further you're actually going to be able to go with this. And so I ended up dropping art class in favor of uh, uh, drama class in grade 12. But I was also playwriting and, and whatever. I um, yeah, and I started to pursue the playwriting field in high school as well. And for me, it was a little safer than getting on stage. Um, and certainly in front of a camera, that always terrified me because I knew that on camera, my eyes, I mean, it's, it's very obvious that, that my eyes are uh, unusual, shall we say, outside the mean. And um, so I, I like the stuff behind the scenes. I, I really like to perform and I really like to entertain. And on stage, I can get far enough away and I can rehearse it enough that no one can tell. But I thought, um, you know, no one's ever heard of a blind actor before. So maybe that's not really an option for myself. I put that limitation on myself. And uh, same with the visual art, really. It was, you know, someone said, well, I don't know how to teach you. And so I immediately thought, well, that's obviously that's not a, a direction I can go. And... Um, then what happened? Well, after high school, I got a, a job working at Alberta Theatre Projects in Calgary. It was a junior apprentice position. So for $75 a week, I got to work in the office. I got to work in every department, the art department. The I got to read scripts. I got to go backstage. I got to work with the stage management and just do absolutely everything in that year. And honestly, that one year, I met some of my... Uh, like to this day, my mentors I, I met in that year, people that I still work with, colleagues and friends and associates in that one year. And I had a, um, a playwriting mentor who said to me, because I, I had gotten accepted to Concordia University in Montreal in the playwriting course, and I got accepted to work at a year as, for a year at Alberta Theatre Projects. And my playwriting mentor, Dan Libman, said, well, if I had to give you the, the piece of advice that I wish someone had given me, it's that it really doesn't matter where you go to school. It's going to be about the people you meet, and it's going to be about the, the colleagues that you uh, get along with, and if you're the kind of person that they want to work with. So be the kind of person who gets invited into the room. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to Montreal and meet a bunch of other students and maybe some teachers in Montreal, but ATP, I've been seeing shows there since I was in junior high and high school. I want to work here, and I want to work with these people. So I stayed in Calgary for that year and honestly it was completely transformative from there I went to a two-year program at Mount Royal College which was a conservatory program where I ended up working with and meeting again more people that I still work with to this day and it was the decision I think to stay in Calgary and foster those relationships that has led me to 
yeah, exploring beyond it. And, um, and I, I go back to Calgary at least once a year, if not to work, then just to, just to uh, nurture that, uh, those roots. Cause yeah, it means a lot to me. So all those decades of varied experience, when you walked onto the set of Star Trek Strange New Worlds for the first time, you knew all the departments, you knew the backstory, you knew, uh, not the backstory of your character, but I'm more of the, how the operation, it wasn't unfamiliar to you. Well, film is really different from TV, there, or from uh, theater, I should say. Excuse me. Um, yeah, Star Trek was really my first time on a on a big shoot like that. I'd done some independent stuff, but that the size of it was absolutely enormous. Um, I yeah, I'm certainly familiar with the departments, but not to the extent that there's assistance and assistance of the assistants and and all of that. I was actually quite nervous showing up on the first day because there was so much uh, that did seem unfamiliar. The, just the size of it, and this is a Mississauga too. They were shooting. Yeah, they're right? shooting at the CBS. Uh, I can't remember what the stupid CBS Canada stage is in Mississauga, and I expressed that I think maybe in my first or second. Uh, zoom audition i said well uh just so you know like i don't i don't have much experience with this and i'm really going to need some help on the set and they were right away with somebody so as soon as i showed up i had an assistant who would meet me at the at the van and walk me to where i needed to go with the covid testing and then over to the trailer and and just somebody with me every step of the way right up until right up till and including when they said action you know they would walk me where the camera was going to be it's going to move like this and here's where your eye line has to be and there was just so much care taken around that that I never once felt like I'm I'm having to wing it or I'm having to fake it or any of that. Um, yeah, and it really it really made me feel confident and uh, very comfortable in that environment. So walking onto the set of Star Trek for the first time was must have been a phenomenal experience. It truly was. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it was probably halfway through the shooting of the first season that the penny actually dropped that this was real. <laughs> Because <laughs> I would just be shaking my head and pinching myself every time. Like I remember the first uh, camera test that I did. So it was five and a half hours in the makeup chair to test the prosthetics, to work them out. And then they brought me into uh, the set of the bridge of the Enterprise to put me in front of a camera and see how it was all going to look. And I, they said, say something. And I think I just went, oh. <laughs> maybe a tear came down my cheek. Yeah. Tell me about the prosthetics that you're wearing. What is the look that they're trying to achieve with Hemmer? Hemmer is an Andorian, uh, which is a species that has that's typically blue, and they have antenna on their head. And the and the Enar, which is a subspecies, they're the albino version that lives in the ice caves in the northern Andor. Uh, so we're totally white, and we have antenna, and um, yeah, it's 15 pieces of prosthetics, beginning with a wig cap or a bald cap, and then cheeks and eyes and, and forehead and ridges and sort of spikes coming out of my uh, out of my uh, eyebrows and then uh, pieces on the hands as well so I'm totally pale and uh, what was interesting um, about the eyes was that in the early days they wanted to put these contact lenses that would white out my my pupils so I went in uh, for one of the tests and they brought me to a an eye doctor in Toronto a specialist who did a quick exam and we talked about my my vision history and uh then the the contact lens people came in and they they so the thing was with with the makeup on the hands i wouldn't be able to put them in myself so it would be somebody else putting the lens in and that immediately just made me cringe and like uh, and then the taking out of it was even worse but once the lens got in like my eye immediately went red and i and it was offset and so i couldn't see and the doctor kind of pulled me aside and said, look, you got you got 9% that's working great for you right now. Well, let's not mess it up. And again, the production side of Star Trek just stepped right in and they were like, no problem. We will do it in post. And so the look at, at and I didn't actually, see, like when we shot it, it was my eyes, but they've gone through and like every single frame they digitally changed so that Hammer's eyes are totally white. And they look phenomenal i'm just I'm, and it's one of those things that for me as a disabled performer is a total dream because i've always been concerned with the way that my eyes look on camera and that i can't hide this and this was going to be an issue and here they've given me a brand new set of eyes and it leads me to thinking about you know daniel day lewis who 
as an able-bodied actor who could transform himself physically and convince you that he was disabled. And now we have the technology where a disabled performer can do a performance and can convince you that they are not who they truly are. So there's that transformation again. And I dream of a time when we're going to see someone in a wheelchair and we'll be convinced that they're dancing. We're getting there. We're getting there. You talked earlier about bringing some of your own lived experience to the character. It's not just, here's the script, uh, do it. What have you brought uh, to the character of Hammer that maybe the producers didn't anticipate or the writers? I think where I went with it was um, in a physicality that is uh, a little bit more, what's the word, I guess? Well, okay. Sort of was there some to... teaching you had to do to the? No, I wouldn't say there was teaching, but I think it was. I think it was um, in the way that a person with a visual disability moves through the world. We tend to turn up our hearing a bit, and we tend to be a little slower in our pacing. There's a, a caution which comes from a visual disability in a physical space. Um, which can read as uh, maybe an aloofness or a disinterest or whatever. And so when, then it's the comment that I'm getting the most about the character of Hammer is, oh, he seems so grumpy. He seems so, oh. I'm like, well, yeah, but there's also, like I'm listening in a different way. And for me, I, I listen differently with my ears, shall we say. People say, oh, is your hearing better? Is your sense of smell better? Is your, or whatever. I don't know that it's better. I just think I use it in a different way because I'm relying on it better. Or, or some, I'm relying on it more. And I think if you're to amp that up into this character with telepathy, well, then there's there's going to be another level of listening in a different way. So to me, that translates into a physical presence and also, yeah, his his uh, his demeanor and overall verbal vocal expression is perhaps a little harsher. So the telepathy you use to read other people's energy that's coming off them and try to understand them more in that way, is that how the telepathy works? Well, it, it, it's a little bit of that. They, the Enar have a strict code that they won't read anyone's thoughts. So he's really strict about that. But the telepathy is also used to read a space, to read a screen. So obviously, like, in, in, he's an engineer, so there's a lot of visual information that's coming off of these screens. And I thought, well, how is he possibly going to read it unless it's tactile or if it's that other way? And then I thought, well, actually, for me, if I want to, say, see if the stove is on, I don't have to touch the stove to know that it's on. I can just hold my hand over it, and you can feel the heat coming off of it with my hand. Well, if I had telepathy, I wouldn't have to use my hand. I would just be able to feel the heat coming off of the stove. In the same way, then, if we extrapolate by 250 years here's a character that has enhanced telepathy so he's able to just feel say the heat coming off of a, a screen and where and even maybe be able to read the color or be able to read the intensity or the vibration of it and so a screen to him would just be another incredibly uh, rich but tactile sensation that he's able to read without touching now working with the other cast members on star trek strange new worlds must have been a learning experience for them as well. So what do you think they gained from perhaps the first time working with a, a legally blind actor and the way production uh, took place and blocking and scenes and things like that? You mentioned how you move and things like that. Yeah, one of the things that I asked for uh, really on my very first day was that when people address me that they just say their name so that I know who's talking because I don't see faces. So that became a bit of a culture on set was that people would say, Bruce, it's Rebecca or Bruce, it's Anson. And, and that way I would know who was, who was speaking to me. And that, that translated all the way like through pretty much every department that, um, that cultural shift. And I, I gotta tell you that made things so much easier because I wasn't having to guess or pretend like, oh, I know who you are until like three minutes after the conversation's done. It's like, oh, right. That voice sounds familiar. <laughs> I think yeah. I know who you are. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now, what about the, the fan culture? Now, Star Trek, of course, mm. has a huge fan culture. There's Memory Alpha. Yeah. There's uh, Star Trek conventions all over North America and the world. What has been your taste of the reaction when they cast you and your character of Hammer? Well, the announcement came out on Star Trek Day, which was back in October, and it was about 30 seconds after the announcement was made that my Facebook started lighting up and messages of congratulations. I think one of the very first messages I got was just a welcome to the family, which was so lovely. And then um, 
you know, bits and pieces as the as the rollout was happening. And then I got invited to the premiere in New York, uh, which was, I think, on May 2nd. So it came just, just a couple of days before it launched um, on Paramount+. Plus. And it was, you know, honestly, Craig, I felt the moment that my life changed. And it was, got to New York, went Friday, Friday night stayed at this crazy nice hotel that, like right downtown. Saturday morning, I woke up and I'd heard that um, that the 14th Street subway station ha- was totally dedicated to Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. So I walked from my hotel all the way through Times Square, and there was this enormous, like I don't know, 15-story flashing billboard with Anson and Rebecca and Celia and um, and Ethan Peck on it. Strange New Worlds, kind of flashing over Times Square. And I thought, okay, that's really cool. And then I went all the way down to 14th Street and went to the subway. And it was like every pillar, every wall had a poster or a character. And there was me like oversized on a pillar, like the hammer look and on on the walls. And I just kind of went, and the subway station was mostly kind of empty. And I just kind of wandered around and took photos of it. And then the the event wasn't happening until four o'clock so I, I went back to the hotel room and i just kind of prepared myself for the day and at one point i was just getting so agitated so i left the hotel to go for a walk and i hear bros 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 and there's these fans and they they recognize me i'm not in my prosthetics or anything so they, they'd obviously been waiting there for a while bros, and they rush over and they've got stacks of photographs of the character and the posters and like do you we, we don't want to bother you we know you're on a, on your walk we know you've got the event tonight, but do you have time to sign a couple of things? And I was like, uh, and then a selfie. And, it was, and, I, and I, my face must have just been like totally gobsmacked. And I just stood there and, and signed these autographs and had the most wonderful chats. I mean, the, there were, I think, maybe three, four of them, um, these fellas. And we just chatted about Star Trek and about the show. And they were so excited about it coming out. And, uh, you know, they were going to try to sneak in and see the premiere that night. And, oh, have you, have you heard about the costume exhibit? And, yeah. And then since then, it's just been um, every day getting another message. And I'm spending probably an hour every morning on social media and email just responding to the fans who are reaching out. They're, they love this show. And it's very much a relationship. The fans are part. Yeah. Uh, they're engaged in invested in how the characters develop absolutely what, what they should do next and and you know it's it's funny that the power that the fans have had i just i think i just uh, can't remember the name of this documentary but it was a documentary about uh, the making of star trek and how it, it had actually been canceled it was slated to be canceled i think either after the first or second season and there was a letter writing the original series the original yes. series yeah. and there was a letter writing campaign that actually brought it back for i think at least another season um so that you know that's the seeds of the fan base but even up until strange new worlds there was um three of the characters the the captain and number one and spock were introduced in season two of discovery and there was a huge outpouring of love for those characters after that and a demand for we want to see that show and it was really the momentum of the fans that's brought it to where it is and and you can tell i think from the writing in this show the incredible attention to detail and what stories they're writing, how they're writing the stories that like, this is a fan forward show. (laughs) Like it's really all about them. And honestly, to be bringing that level of joy to that many people, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be happier. You're listening to the Stratford slice with Craig Thompson. Check out our website, the Stratford slice.com. And be sure to subscribe. And now, back to the show. Well, I watched Star Trek as a kid, and I i wouldn't say I'm a, a Star Trek fan, but I've watched all of the programs. Mm. And I have to tell you, I was at a Star Trek convention in Las Vegas a few years ago oh. filming with William Shatner because we yeah. were doing The Captains, a documentary at the time. And I couldn't believe, like, there was tens of thousands of people. Yeah. And he would just walk through the casino and through the floor, and people would mob him and oh, yeah. say hi and then they'd line up for hours for for autographs yeah and he now until recently i'm sure he's still doing it now but until recently he was doing a road show every year going to all the different star trek conventions where he just makes these appearances and signs the fans outstanding and this is like 60 years after the uh, 50 plus years after yeah. the original series 
went on and a series that he kind of poo-pooed for a long time until, mm. you know, this fan culture, which didn't really exist in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. It really just, it, it came up when the first motion pictures, but Star Trek didn't really solidify, I don't think, until Star Trek The Next Generation mm. uh, came out. And even that, as you had mentioned, the first season was sort of iffy, but it just took off after season two or three. And that's really when the franchise was cemented. I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any other franchise that I can think of that has said such a, and perhaps it's because of the loyalty to science fiction and the, and the scientific, uh, elements that Gene Roddenberry, uh, mm. wanted to bring into the series. He didn't want to make some sort of dune or far off a mythical thing. He wanted to have it rooted in humanity. Yeah. And that's yeah. sort of where Star Trek and speaking of Gene Roddenberry, Rod, his son, is yeah. one of the executive producers of Star Trek That's right. Strange New Worlds. Did you get a chance to meet him? I did, yeah. It was uh, very early days um, while I was still doing prosthetic tests, but yeah. yeah. Did, you, did he tell you any stories or <sighs> share anything no, with was, you? It was very, very quick. We were, uh, I mean, that's, that's the thing about that first season, especially shooting. We were under pretty heavy hit. COVID. Um, COVID, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a very, it was a socially distanced <laughs> meeting. Was um, the character of Hammer uh, originally going to be the size and importance as it is now? Do you see that changing? And where is it? I don't asking for spoilers, but mm. I'm just wondering: Do you see that character is becoming? Uh, are you hoping that character is uh, going to continue in importance based on what your reaction from fans are? What do you think? Well, I'll say this much uh, without giving anything away about the the next the, the rest of the season here. Um, but uh, I was told a lot of details about the character in my in the, during my audition process. Um, my final audition was with showrunner uh, Henry Alonso Myers, and we had a really fantastic conversation about. Uh, actually, it was about Spock, and it was about the the other characters on the on the show and how people tend to relate to them, um, and how uh, what the yeah, what the importance of Hammer was going to be to to the crew and to specifically to Uhura. And we see that in the first few episodes where Uhura isn't sure of her place in Starfleet and there's Hammer who's kind of the, the wizened, aged, um, you know, crotchety engineer and how they develop their relationship over the time and, and kind of his principles as a pacifist. Um, and, you know, some of the challenges that he's going to, he's going to have to face as a pacifist in a, in a, I mean, it's, an, it's a ship of exploration and science and goodwill and all that, but they still get into situations where they're having to fight. And so, like, yeah, yeah <clears throat> putting him into that into that mix is, uh, yeah, I, I find that particularly interesting. When the first Star Trek came out in the 1960s, we were in the mm -hmm. middle of the Vietnam War. There was a civil rights movement. There was assassinations of presidents and Martin Luther King. So, and Gene Roddenberry's humanist uh, principles sort of, informed you talked about pacifism and yeah. and spreading peace we're now uh you know 50 60 years uh later star trek strange new worlds takes place before the original star trek but what is the connection between what's happening in the world today and some of the storylines that are being explored in the series well right from the very first episode um we're getting some pretty pretty serious commentary on the state of the world we see uh, the Enterprise visits a planet that is basically on the edge of annihilating themselves with nuclear weapons. And the captain shows up and kind of shows them what that future will look like. And he begins with showing kind of a, a video montage of the history of, the, of, of Earth. And they're planted directly in the middle of that montage or the January 6th riots and moving into, you know, kind of an imagined future of what this kind of division with this kind of inhumanity to each other will will lead to um i think the the message that well all of the star trek franchises put out is that we have to figure a way to work together and that only by working together by listening to each other by allowing for voices to be heard are we going to get beyond this kind of division and you know me and mine into Hours. Let's get off Star Trek for a moment. I want to talk about your painting. Sure. Um, and assassinating Thompson. Ah, yes. Uh, Tom Thompson, to be uh, yes. specific, the artist <laughs> and uh, no P. 
exactly. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the wet Thompson. He's the dry one. <laughs> That's right. But uh, we have this lore about Tom Thompson. Mm. Uh, he was he was a precursor to the Group of Seven, and of course he drowned under mysterious circumstances in uh, Algonquin Park. Yeah. Um, what attracted you? What was the story that you were you are or were trying to tell with assassinating Thompson and why did you call it assassinating Thompson when he's uh-huh. already dead? When he's already dead. That's a very good question. I, um, so a little backstory on the creation of the show. I, I was commissioned a number of years ago by the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, Alberta to write a 45 minute two person sort of comedy sketch music review show about the history of Canadian art. So they wanted 45 minutes, fast and light and funny for kids, you know, grades five, six, and seven. And that was when I was given the research research materials, the sort of dusty tomes on Canadian art. And uh, that's really when I first encountered the story of Tom Thompson. And I found it fascinating, just the various kind of uh, ideas, the clues, the mystery around it, but also his work. It's just, yeah, it was really striking. Um, And then kind of flash forward about, I don't know, maybe 10 years, and I got the opportunity to tour a fringe show across the country. And my director and collaborator, Ryan Gladstone out in Vancouver, called me and said, okay, we we just got into the lottery for all these shows. What do you want to do? How about something about Tom Thompson? I said, sure, let's let's give it a shot. So I wrote over the year, I started researching, and I wrote a one-person show that was kind of a mystery where Tom's brother goes up to Algonquin Park and tries to solve the mystery with all, me playing all of the various characters and the various ideas. Um, and it was, yeah, I got some pretty heavy notes on that particular version. It wasn't terribly good. But uh, at the same time that I was working on this play, one-person show, I was also painting portraits. And I was painting portraits specifically because people would ask me, how do you do what you do? How do you see? And so I would say, well, come come over, sit for an hour. We'll have a cup of tea, and I'll, I'll throw some some paint on a canvas and see if I can capture the way that I see. And I was probably around portrait number 400 at the time. I was just doing them mostly just kind of for fun and and a great way to chat with people. But inevitably, over the course of a portrait sitting, people would say, how did you get into painting? And who are your influences? And how do you see? And so really, it seemed like those first 400 portraits were me rehearsing for what would become Assassinating Thompson. The day before I started rehearsals and I was really hating the script I had written, I sat with a friend of mine uh, in Vancouver and I did her portrait and I just basically answered questions for the portrait sitting. Next day I get to the rehearsal hall and I said to Ryan, I'm like, I'm throwing out the script and we had 10 days in a, in a rehearsal hall at the uh, University of BC and uh, I said, I just want to, I'm going to spend the morning, I'm going to paint your portrait and talk, and then we'll go for lunch, and then we'll do notes, and then I'll go off and, you know, go to the beach or something. So for 10 days, this is this is how we rehearsed the show. It was, uh, it's intended to be a conversation. It's intended to be a portrait sitting. It should feel like just going to an artist's studio and, and having, a, having a hangout. Um, I lace in the story of Tom Thompson because he is an influence of mine. But there's a lot of really weird coincidences between his life and mine. Uh, we have the same birthday, August 5th. He lived at Young and Wellesley in Toronto, which is roughly where I lived. And one of the people who's suspected of having murdered Tom Thompson was a man named Shannon Fraser, which was the name of my high school girlfriend. Spooky. Yeah. Um, he started painting at about... like really seriously painting at about uh, 33 or 34 years of age and was 39 when he died. I was roughly 33 when I started painting and I turned 39 the same summer that I I toured the show. And so for my 39th birthday, uh, we happened to be in Ontario and some friends and I went up to Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park and we we, we spent two nights up there camping. I really wanted to see the supposed grave at the Canoe Lake Cemetery. I wanted to go over to Tom Thompson Island, and we had a really great time just camping and, and hanging out. And uh, we sn- we had, it's, so the, the deal is it, at Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park, for those of you traveling, is that it's, uh, that cemetery is on private property, and you can't actually go up there. And when we checked in, we didn't know this, we went to the ranger station, and I asked the ranger, I'm like, can you show us where the grave is? He says, private property, you can't go there. 
but in the Rangers station, there was a whole bookshelf of books, and there's a copy of Northern Light by Roy McGregor sitting on the bookshelf, which I had just finished reading. I knew that in the inside cover of that was a hand-drawn map of Canoe Lake with a little X where the cemetery was. So I took a photo of it on my phone, and then I sent Roy McGregor 10 bucks for copyright infringement kidding and uh, the next day we snuck sort of through the woods and we found the graveyard and i went up to the top of the hill and got to sit where tom thompson apparently allegedly 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 is buried um why assassinating thompson it's that's kind of an interesting question because the title of the show changes as i do it as i talk about the history of the show I, i go through that process of writing the musical, writing the one-person show, and the various titles that were coming up. I was calling it, you know, Fishing for Thompson or A Brush with Death or, you know, all these horrible titles were coming to mind. And I settled on assassinating Thompson because his death and the subsequent rise of the Group of Seven onto the international art scene, uh, I posit that all of that movement and all of the Canadian art movement that was coming out at that time was was uh, fostered in the political act. Lauren Harris and J.E.H. MacDonald and the guys who started the Group of Seven believed that a country will be known for its words, its deeds, and its art, but most importantly, its art. So it was very important to them that Canada represent itself on the international art scene. And when Thompson died and Harris and the rest of the Group of Seven started following essentially in his footsteps, they always showcased their work with Tom Thompson. And they attached themselves to that story because if you want to get an art movement going, you have to have a good story. And what gets a good movement going? A martyr, somebody who dies. And Under they, mysterious circumstances. And if they die mysteriously, if their <clears throat> ghost haunts the lake, if et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you have a great story and then you're, you're going to go down in history. Thompson would have been largely forgotten had the Group of Seven not attached themselves to him if you know, they just figured out, oh, he was a drunk who fell out of his canoe and, and drowned and who cares. Uh, you know, no no big loss for Canadian art, but all of that mystery and the and the surrounding stories. I mean, every year there's another book on Thompson. There's another there's another take on it, and uh, so yeah, and and it's there's a playful playfulness to that the the Harris story that I get into, and and I start to leap off into some of the other ridiculous notions like that. It was the fish that killed him, or maybe it was you know all these other. Uh, great, intriguing, and I think very, very creative ideas of of uh, who killed Tom Thompson. Do you think the notoriety that you're getting with Star Trek will enable you to remount that show again or pursue other creative endeavors? Are we going to see Assassinating Thompson again at some point? Yes, Assassinating Thompson is going to the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, and we're running from July 26th until the 31st on the fourth stage, so an outdoor venue. And then I'm also doing a tour of Manitoba in February of 2023. February, you say. What a strange time to tour Manitoba. Although what sold me on it was two things. One, uh, we get to go to Churchill, which is a place I've always wanted to go. And the second thing was the tour coordinator told me that February, while it's cold, it's a stable cold. (laughs) I've been in Winnipeg at those times of year. Yeah. I decided that I didn't want to permanently move there, but uh, yeah. minus 25, minus 40 with the wind chill. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be real good. And it's indoors, I hope. <laughs> yes, all indoor venues. In the Otherwise, movie. your paint will freeze. That's right. <laughs> um, I mentioned at the top about the connection between Stratford and Star Trek. Mm. There are so many, and you've been on the stage at Stratford. You did Assassinating Thompson. That's right. And then you did the improv. Um, An Undiscovered Shakespeare. Undiscovered Shakespeare. Right. What, do you, what do you think about that connection between Stratford and, and Star Trek and the, the great talent that's been on the stage here? Well, it just makes perfect sense to me that uh, someone who has a grasp of Shakespeare would go off to Star Trek because some of that techno jargon, the techno babble, I think that's what they call it, is it technically English? <laughs> but it's like, yeah, you have to really, uh, you have to wrap your mouth around that stuff. And I think having a, a grasp of, of Shakespeare is super helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Patrick Stewart said when we were doing that that film, hmm. Captains. He said, it's like acting uh, a lead character, Macbeth or Hamlet. It's a, it's a major, it's like a king. 
in Shakespeare uh, yeah. acting in Star Trek, and you have to have that grasp of uh, uh, of of the language in order to be mm -hmm. able to uh, present the story properly. Definitely. Let's talk about uh, the period during uh, COVID. You're very big on improv. Yes. And I want to uh, hear about how you passed the time <laughs> before before Star Trek came a calling. Uh, well, when everything shut down, I think I went into, into isolation for two weeks and just kind of shook my head and thought, well, that's it. That's the end of the performing arts. But... Um, so there's sort of a core group of us here in Stratford um, who who improvise together. Uh, Rebecca Northan, myself, Kevin Krushkowicz, Joma Messawan. And the four of us were kind of the locals who were working on An Undiscovered Shakespeare, which is sort of the brainchild of Rebecca Northan, whose spontaneous theater shows, what they do is, uh, including Blind Date and Legend Has It Undercover, they all focus on an audience member. We bring an audience member up on stage, we interview them, this is Undiscovered Shakespeare. We interview them about their real-life love story, and then we take a little break, and then we come back and improvise a five-act Shakespearean play based on their love story in iambic pentameter. There were, I think there were seven of us in that company, plus a musician, and uh, we'd been working on it for five or six years. We were ready to pull the trigger and do it in the 2020 season, and then everything kind of fell apart. So Ijoma, Kevin, Rebecca, and I decided, well, we're not just going to sit on our thumbs and wait for this thing to pass. We have to do something. We've got to keep... Because the practice of improvising is is something you, you just have to keep up with it. And then improvising an iambic pentameter is something that's like, well, this is... It's a whole other ball game. And if you go for a year without doing it, you're really going to... You know, you're going to be starting so much further back. But... Um, so what we did was... Uh, the first thing we did was a thing called sidewalk scenes. So uh, we would <laughs> offer kind of a menu of shows to the locals and they would book spontaneous theater to come and do a sidewalk scene and you'd either get an improv show or a music show or an improv and music show or there was also a kid's show that Ijoma did and uh, we did that for the entire summer, toured all over Stratford, many, many uh, driveways and parking lots in Stratford. And uh, that kept us very busy. And then we also did a uh, production of Romeo and Juliet at the Bruce Hotel in the, in the Parkade. So we partnered with the hotel. They provided uh, food service to people's cars. We could, I think we could accommodate eight cars in the parking garage. And then we would perform Romeo and Juliet in the center, the four of us. And that kept us very busy for the month of July and August. And sidewalk scenes eventually turned into backyard concerts. And then we also, under Spontaneous Theatre, we moved indoors to the Revival House. So we did some, like, a, a weekly improv show there uh, called Spontaneous Theatre. And, yeah, just continues to this day. Spontaneous Theatre, uh, still working on shows. And where does music fit in? Are you performing regularly, practicing? What's your I'm music? still practicing, yeah. And I, I when we did Sidewalk Scenes, um, I was the musical act along with my partner, Amalia Gilbertson. We played as the Railbird, so the two of us would, would do music. Um, now I'm still practicing and I'm doing some solo shows and uh, composing music pretty much every day. And not so long ago, uh, you were out in Calgary doing something called Goblin Macbeth. Goblin Macbeth, yeah. I didn't get a chance to go to Calgary to see <laughs> it, but I can only imagine what is what Goblin, was Goblin Macbeth. Goblin Macbeth was absolutely wild. So was it improv? No. Well, so years ago, Rebecca had this idea that... Um, so... When a production of, say, Hamlet is coming up, and I think initially it was going to be Goblin Hamlet, and Rebecca said, well, every time I hear about Hamlet, the first question is always, who's your Hamlet? Who's playing Hamlet? And when, as soon as they come out on stage, uh, everyone is immediately comparing this performer to the one that they've seen before. And Rebecca thought, wouldn't it be interesting if you didn't know who was playing Hamlet? So you could just hear the words. And, and... So we do a lot of mask work in spontaneous theater, and we found these incredible silicon masks. They're goblins, and they're from a company in the in the U.S. called uh, Composite Effects, and they provide a lot of the masks to um, like Game of Thrones style stuff. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a goblin come out and do Hamlet or whatever, and a company of of performers? So they show up in mask, and you know the audience is milling milling about, and the van pulls up, and these goblins jump out, drag the audience into the theater, and do a show. 
So this idea had been kicking around for a while of a goblin production. And it was always interesting that Rebecca would, would talk to an actor and say, so we got this idea, and what would you think about doing a goblin whatever? And, and she'd get one of two responses. One, of the, one, the actor would say, so they wouldn't know who I was? No way. <laughs> no way. I'm not doing all that work and not getting And then the other side would be, great. Yes, absolutely. I'd love it. So in February uh, of this year, um, I was in Milwaukee. Rebecca was in Montreal, and we got a phone call from the artistic director of the Shakespeare Company in Calgary. Called Rebecca and said, I, I'm hooped. I've got this show, Dropout. They're supposed to open in March. It's a two-person version of Macbeth. I'm totally hooped. And Rebecca said, well, it's a good thing you know some improvisers. And Hasem Kadri says, what have you got? Rebecca says, I'll talk to Bruce. I'll get back to you. So she called me in Milwaukee and said, Hasem needs something. Here's a few ideas. We kicked around the two of us going out and just improvising as Shakespeare. So we would put all the play titles in a hat and have an audience member draw, you know, Titus Andronicus, and then we would just improvise it. And I thought, that sounds really hard. <laughs> going out on a limb. Oh, yeah. Try to remember your encyclopedic knowledge. Of yeah, Shakespeare. improvising in the pentameter. <clears throat> and I, I felt a bit rusty and totally terrified of that. And then she said, well, what about Goblin Hamlet? And I thought, well, okay, I don't really know Hamlet that well, but what about Macbeth? Because she and I had done a production of Macbeth before. I was quite familiar with the script, as was she. She had an adaptation of the script already done um, for, I think, six actors. So we wrote back to Hasem, or, or Rebecca called Hasem and said, okay, we're going to do a two-person Macbeth, uh, but only if we can get these composite effects goblin masks. So she calls down to composite effects, and they're like, it's a six to eight week turnaround if you want one. They're $1,000 each. And um, if you can use three of the same, we can ship them to you right away. So without waiting six to eight weeks. Wouldn't have to wait yeah. six to eight weeks. We can get them within maybe a week or so. Uh, and we had planned at this point that Rebecca and I would play all the characters switching off throughout the show. Predominantly, I would play Mackers and she would play Lamiam, but we would jump around. We would, you know, halfway through a scene, I'd be playing Banquo and then she'd take over the Banquo part because I had to come in as Duncan or something yeah. like that. So we kind of decided on this framework um, and we were going to have a musician. So Ellis Lalonde from Calgary, who's just a remarkable musician, he joined us, um, but not for a couple of weeks because Rebecca and I were still not in the same city. So did another edit of the script, did a reading over Zoom. We met with designers who were in Calgary over zoom and uh the thing just kind of rolled we met in rebecca got back from montreal i got back from milwaukee we rehearsed in stratford for mm, i want to say four days most of which was spent doing trips to value village and uh, goodwill to find you know props and things and got ourselves as close to off book as we could get and got to calgary we worked ellis in we did a couple of days of tech and we did our first run in full mask in front of an audience in Calgary, and uh, it was absolutely terrifying. I think 10 minutes before we went out on stage, uh, one of us said, are we about to completely humiliate ourselves? <laughs> but it went over like, like we couldn't, we could not have asked for better. It was, um, Hasem came up with this great phrase that uh, uh, pressure creates diamonds. And it really, it was one of those experiences that just felt so rare and wonderful that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really eager to get back at it. That, that production, you know, it mixes so many elements that I love. It mixes mask work, there's comedy, there's improv within it. Um, Is there a chance of restaging it for oh, those yeah. of us in the East? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's still f irons in the fire, but we're, uh, we were invited back to Calgary to do a run of it in October. September, October, um, we did one high school matinee and it was on fire. The fact that, because these three goblins sort of show up and they hijack the theater as though they're not supposed to be there. They force a technician to run lights and sound. They take one, one of the uh, front of house people and hide them backstage who they later murder because they need a Duncan and they need real blood because they don't understand the difference between pretend and yeah. <laughs> and all that. But they're, uh, they just have this absolute sort of disregard and confusion around a, around humanity, but also why Shakespeare and, and that kind of unraveling and, um, you know, proper disrespect of the bard. I think the kids just absolutely loved it. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to do it again. And also hooks them into Shakespeare because, 
you know, Shakespeare, we need to attract younger audiences to see live theater. Mm -hmm. We can't just have our kids looking at iPads and things like that all the time. They have to be, you have to experience. Yeah, and that live experience was really, uh, yeah, it was really important. And and it was was incredibly moving to, to, uh, to hear the amount of engagement that, that they were willing to go with. At one point um, in the show, the the uh, you know the English army is uh, is approaching the castle, and they're disguised as Burnham Woods. So we get we get a couple of the kids to go out in the lobby and rip apart this sculpture of a tree, and give the tree branches out to the audience. And Rebecca's goblin says, "Okay, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to be the army. When the lights are on you, you're going to hold your branches up, and when the lights come down, you're not in the scene anymore." And they would do this. They would just immediately like hold their branches up like they're hiding and kind of wave them towards us. And at one point, uh, Rebecca's kind of in the audience working up the English army. She says, you know, let, let all your trumpets sound and all, all the audience members, they all make this noise. And then they start pounding with their feet on the, on the risers as though they're approaching the, the, uh, the castle. And it was heart-stopping to be on stage and just to hear this kind of rush from the audience and and they're yelling charge and they're getting right into it like this is not something you're going to get really anywhere else like sitting on your sitting watching i mean beautiful adaptations on film but honestly that live theatrical experience is uh yeah nothing beats it and theater's now making a comeback we've been shut down for a couple years do you think it's coming back in the same way it was before or do you think theater has had a hit a reset button. Oh wow, yeah, I think we've all hit a reset button for sure. It's um yeah, the shows that I've gone to see uh since the pandemic have been some of the most emotional, riveting um kind of yeah, I don't know. It, it, is it because we've missed it for so long that I it's having so. more yeah. of an impact, or because we now have a new attitude, like Hamlet, for example? Mm. We have the first uh, Amakume playing Hamlet, mm. the first black uh, uh, actor to play the lead character of Hamlet. Yeah, you saw that. I did see that. Yeah, and it's um, you know that experience going to see that show was just uh, it was a rush. It was an absolute rush just to be in a. a crowd like that and to be the watching energy, the show yeah. and the energy of the show and you could just feel the passion and the drive and the hunger in that room and that's you know that's been a constant since I've been going back and seeing shows was you know even though we're masked even though we're we might be socially distanced or whatever uh we we need to be experiencing this stuff together in groups and, you know and in a social way um that that disconnect that isolation um yeah, it was, that was just really, really hard to live through. And thankfully, as we as we start to come out the other side, and, and I think we're slowly getting there, um, the hunger for community is, is even stronger. So uh, let's get back to Star Trek uh, for a moment. People think when they see you on television uh, every week or whatever they've been to watch that you're always doing that show, but actually a schedule isn't as really as challenging as people might think. What is your schedule what has been your schedule with Star Trek, and where does it go from here? Uh, the schedule was, um, yeah, it was pretty erratic. I, I think I'm in about five episodes of the first season, so I wasn't there every day. And I think the, the so that the day would basically start three and a half hours before the call time. So if the call time was at nine, it's three and a half hours before that. Pardon my math. And uh, I'd be in prosthetics and and then uh, get to set. And sometimes it was a whole 14-hour day and then another hour at the end of the day to get out of the prosthetics and then get home. Um, and then season two? That I can't even talk about. No, but has that been... That hasn't been filmed yet. Season two is currently filming right now. And yeah. you're... Okay. They, uh, they announced season two midway through shooting of season one that they'd already picked it up and they'd already started writing it so it's a go it's shooting right now and i think it wraps uh end of june mm-hmm. so, so it'll be airing probably this season two will probably air around the same time that, and so you yeah, now have time year. to explore other things and uh, oh yeah yeah i've got lots of time well it's interesting that it's called strange new worlds because we're kind of in a strange new world and this whole yeah. experience for you has been a totally. strange new world don't you think totally weird weird new possibilities yeah it's been um yeah I, I keep i keep shaking my head and just thinking this 
this feels like I've been in a dream for the last uh, two years. Where do you think you'll take it? I'm really looking forward to uh, more of that fan interaction. So I'm I'm looking at doing the convention circuit for sure. Um, you know, there's a Star Trek cruise. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, there's uh, there's a there's a convention in my old hometown of Calgary. Maybe I'll be out there. Well, it's great to chat with you. Congratulations you on you. your tremendous success in joining the, the Star Trek universe. Thank you, sir. Bruce Horak, thanks very much. Pleasure. You've been listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. For more episodes, check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. The Stratford Slice is produced by Ballinran Entertainment. Southwestern Ontario's number one digital media studio. If you have a great story to tell and want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, thestratfordslice.com. <laughs>